What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. It's another big down day in the markets. As investors sell into the three-day weekend, we started out in positive territory today, but all three indices have lost those gains and then some. Dow's down 315 right now. NASDAQ's down 255. So the NASDAQ, again, the worst performer. Let's start with the Dow and take a look at this intraday chart. We got a nice morning bump after the jobs report showed a big drop in the unemployment rate. We are up 247 points at the highs back right back here when you can see the green territory. But ever since then, it's been a steep slide into negative territory with a little bit of a comeback in the last hour or so. Same pattern in the Nasdaq, which has really been the market leader. We started out with the highs of 73 point gain today coming back from yesterday's monster sell off. Couldn't hold those. I mean, you can see barely a blip over there. Now at the lows here, we are down 580 points. So we have come off that quite a ways, but the charts have noted the damage, shall we say. Let's get more on where the weakness is and what's been driving the big volatility this week with Bob Bassani. Bob? And the important thing is, uh, we had this happen yesterday, remember, sharp drop within an hour and a half of the open. And then we basically stabilized around 11 o'clock Eastern time and tried rallying. We've been holding up. Yesterday, the difference between today and yesterday, yesterday we've started really falling apart right about now. So keep an eye on that. We're off of our lows, but still a lot of damage. And it's momentum driven again. There are pockets of strength in the market. But let me show you. Take a look at the the big fang names, of course, uh, all of them down again. 2% 2% or so today, although Apple is well off of its lows right now. It's down a little more than 1%. That's the important thing. I think you see some nice moves uh, off of the lows for Apple. Uh, but you're still seeing a lot of stuff that's effectively down 5 6 7% for the week. Uh, the work from home beneficiaries we keep talking about, these are other stocks that have been extremely frothy in the last six, seven trading sessions. They're also to the downside. These have also bounced, but very modestly. DocuSign had very good numbers, very good guidance, and is off of its lows, but just barely. So I would say the rebound here, not terribly impressive. Still telling me this is momentum-driven sell-off, getting rid of some of the froth here. Uh, we talked about this overshooting idea that is out there. Uh, there's some of the financials, by the way. You see Capital One, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. They're all bouncing. The yield curve steepened after we had uh, that non-farm payroll reports uh, today. Uh, we're also seeing the reopening stocks doing a little bit better. There's a broad swath of reopening stocks, but not just travel stocks like Carnival, for example, uh, Las Vegas Sands, Simon Property Group. Some of the REITs are up today. Some of the retailers like L Brands also on the upside. Uh, another group we associate with value, typically industrials, also doing a little bit better today in a lot of cases. Deep industrials like Textron, Eaton, Lyondell, that's a chemical company, uh, actually, all doing better. So, Kelly, right now, two to one declining to advancing stocks. And I know it doesn't look good if you just look at the S&P, but there are some notable pockets of strength. Back to you. No, Bob, I'm glad you called that out. And it's, isn't it the same pattern that we saw yesterday where it's some of the reopening sensitive names, some of the industrials that are outperforming? So, I mean, you need three days to make a trend, but we've got two so far. Yeah, uh, and this tells me that the... The, the, the 
it's not just let's sell off everything. We, the stuff that's been the most frothy in the last six or seven days that have literally gone parabolic and we were all scratching our heads saying, what is going on? That's the stuff that's coming down the most. A lot of other stuff is only down slightly or even up in the last couple of days. So that, that tells me it's about frothiness, this sell-off. It's not about something that's fundamentally wrong with the stock market or the U.S. economy. What's changed in the last 40 hours, 48 hours fundamentally? Right. It's about people looking at valuations. No, that's a super important distinction. Bob, thank you very much. Bob Bassani walking us through the market there. Stocks were not able to hold their gains after the jobs report this morning, which showed the economy adding nearly 1.4 million jobs last month. It beat expectations, but government hiring did lead the way, thanks to more than 300,000 new census workers. Today's sell-off has the Dow and S&P on track for their worst week since June, and the Nasdaq for its worst week since March, and snapping a five-week win streak. For more on the selling spree, I'm joined by Kamal Shri Kumar. President of Sri Kumar Global Strategies, Quincy Crosby, the chief market strategist at Prudential Financial, and Peter Bookvar, the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you guys here because Peter and Kamal, you guys especially have vastly different views on the bond market. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Quincy, I'm going to begin with you and your thoughts on the stock market here. And do you think that a healthy rotation is underway? Well, it could be, but it has to be underpinned by continuing uh, to hear from the uh, developments towards the vaccine. And if that continues to be positive, which it looks as if we're going to have that, particularly going into October when the uh, Federal Drug Administration meets, already you're hearing that perhaps Pfizer, along with BioNTech, may be able to go before that committee uh, for a, a, an emergency approval. It's going to underpin the move away from tech as a, as a funding mechanism for the broader market. If that's the case, Quincy, would you advise people to be sellers of technology and the momentum stocks that they've had gains in here? Well, you know, the market is still technically overbought, and I don't think you're going to see buyers come in, at least professional buyers, until there is either a major announcement regarding a vaccine, but also uh, until the market is oversold and it's not yet oversold. So if you need the money, you want to use it for something else, but you want to use it to allocate towards these other names, yeah, it might be a good idea to take some profit. Peter, let me bring you in on that note and with some thoughts on the developments of the last few days. You know, there hasn't been a clear catalyst for this big tech sell-off that we've seen, but you could say we have gotten a string of very good macro news this week. The ISM manufacturing report, the new orders index in particular, the jobs report this morning, even jobless claims yesterday. Is that in part why you think maybe we're seeing a preference away from the stay-at-home trades and towards the reopening ones? It's possible uh, because we've seen also coincident with that data a sell-off in longer-term treasuries over the last couple of days. So treasuries have been no safe haven for those that are leaving the, the stock market. And, you know, we talk about froth, and, and, and Bob Asani talked about earlier. You know, anybody who's a student of the market and has seen multiple cycles, particularly those in the late 90s, you know, this had every single characteristics of froth. And whether that's rallying on stock splits or uh, a lot of sentiment gauges that were literally off the charts, uh, it was clear that something needed to, to unwind this. Now, why it was yesterday? I don't know. But then on the other hand, why the day before did we have such a rip-roaring rally? Right. So I think the market is, is, is sort of sensing that, yeah, maybe we're going to get a vaccine. We're going to get out of everything that has been so crowded. And I think, again, the interesting aspect of the stock market itself is that 
Treasuries are, are no ballast in, in a portfolio because they're selling off as well. All right. Well, on those controversial words, let me bring in Shri Kumar. Uh, Shri Kumar, I know that you think that bond yields, if anything, are going to be lower for quite some time, that the Fed might even push rates negative. So do you still feel that way, given what Peter's just described in the action on the long end that we saw through the month of August? Yeah, I want to point out that bonds have not had a sell-off for the last two days. It is just today, Kelly. Yesterday was a day of Treasury rally. As the equities plummeted, the Treasuries did well. And as the Federal Reserve, in the form of the Powell speech Thursday, August 27th, spoke in terms of steepening the yield curve, increasing the inflation rate, the yield yesterday was lower than it was before he spoke. So we have had a Treasury rally except for today. What about today? Today is a very special day. I have gone back and checked the post-pandemic dates. There are a few days when all asset classes sell off, both risk assets and risk-free assets. Today, equities, German bunds, U.S. Treasuries, gold, silver, they all sold off without exception. What this says to me is one of intense panic, risk aversion, where the investors are going to cash rather than anything of the assets. In addition to what Quincy said about not finding a, a, a vaccine yet, the schools are reopening, and that gives rise again to a secondary wave of the virus. We have, had, we have elections coming. The election risk is quite significant. The president has indicated that he may not accept the election results. He has asked some voters to vote twice, which is illegal. And as a result of that, we may not have a result right. through all of November. And that is going to be very negative for the equity markets as well. And so there are lots of negatives for equities. And all of those are going to be helpful for U.S. Treasury yields. And it's fascinating. It's a vastly different uh, landscape that you're painting uh, versus some of our other guests. So, Peter, I'll, I'll give you the final word here if you want to just respond to that. I, it seems to me as you would take the other side of almost everything that was just said. Well, I agree with him about the, the uncertainties that we have, particularly over the next couple months going to the election. Uh, that I get. And, and I don't disagree with what potentially can happen in the equity market. But I see a scenario where bonds and stocks can both sell off. I mean, I'm in the camp that we are already seeing the beginning signs of inflation, not because of the Fed, but in spite of the Fed. And right now it is supply chain disruptions that have been turned upside down via COVID that is raising the cost of doing business in a variety of different businesses. And then when we get that vaccine, which I'm pretty confident on, you're going to see an increase in demand that's going to meet a very unstable supply chain that's going to lead to higher inflation. And I will, will say this, I think long-term bonds around the world are going to be the sale of the century when we start getting good news on these vaccines. All right. We will leave it there. They, 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 looking for, for bond yields to go up and inflation to rise for more than a decade now. It hasn't happened. I don't think that is a risk until probably late in 2021 when there is an economic recovery. Over the next year, I see this still a very much a bond-friendly market.
All right. And we'll, we got to continue this on like pro, CNBC pro, take it over time, something like that. We'll leave it there for now, though. Uh, thanks, everybody. Peter Bookvar, Quincy Crosby and Shri Kumar uh, sharing their thoughts about these markets today. Let's now get to the latest read on housing assistance amid the pandemic. Fewer mortgage holders are needing help with payments. Diana Olick is here with those numbers. Diana. Well, Kelly, after holding flat for the last couple of weeks, the coronavirus-related mortgage bailout numbers saw better-than-expected improvement last week. The number of mortgages in active forbearance plans dropped by 147,000, or 4%, over the past week, according to Black Knight. This is the biggest drop since the first week in July, when a lot of borrowers were finishing up their initial three-month plans. Fewer plans expired at the end of August, so the improvement is somewhat of a surprise. Now, active forbearances are down by about 1 million, or 21 since the peak in May. So as of the first of this month, 3.8 million borrowers are still delaying their monthly payments, representing 7.1% of all active mortgages. Less encouraging is that of these, three quarters have had their terms extended from the initial three-month term. The biggest decline was seen in portfolio-held loans and Fannie and Freddie loans, with more modest improvements in FHA and VA. The bright spot here is that even with the extended unemployment benefits expiring, Fewer borrowers are now in need of help on their monthly mortgage payments. Kelly? All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick with the very latest there. Coming up, is this the kind of market sell-off that warrants more action from the Federal Reserve? We'll ask Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren next. Plus, believe it or not, the banks are outperforming today. The two ETFs that track the sector are higher, and financials are the top-performing sector. Why are investors believing in banks? We'll explore the exchanges back in two with much more on today's sell-off. Don't go anywhere. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. As you've heard, the U.S. economy adding nearly 1.4 million jobs last month. But payrolls are still about 11 million below where we were pre-pandemic. And believe it or not, these job gains that we've seen so far don't even take us four years back in terms of the recovery in the labor market. For more on the state of jobs, the economy and the Fed's new path, I'm joined by Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren, along with our very own Steve Leisman. Steve? Kelly, thanks very much. Uh, President Rosengren, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be with you, Steve. Let me start off with what Kelly was just talking about, these jobs numbers. Uh, The unemployment rate at 8.4% coming in much better than expectation. The uh, payroll number a little bit light, perhaps on the private sector, but more or less in line with expectations. Does either number change your uh, outlook on the economy? So I think the employment report, as you just highlighted, was a pretty strong report and a little bit stronger than I was expecting. Uh, Getting the unemployment rate down to 8.4% from 10.2% is certainly a significant improvement. I would highlight that a lot of the job gains were in retail trade and leisure and hospitality. So I think a lot of this is people on temporary layoff that have come back to work. I think one of the concerns I still have is how many people are going to be unemployed for an extended period of time. 
So in any major city, you can tell that retail trade, leisure and hospitality are still sectors that have substantial problems. And if you looked at the duration of unemployment, uh, those unemployed 15 to 26 weeks is currently at six and a half million uh, people. So we have a long way to go before we're fully recovered. But I would say this employment report overall was a very positive one. I just want to uh, follow up on that, uh, President Rosengren. Are we getting there faster than you thought? I know that the uh, street had a consensus of sort of ending the year around 9%, even above 9% on the unemployment rate. Is it possible we get back down to normal faster than you thought? So I think it's still going to take a while. There's a lot to happen between now and the end of the year. Uh, one of the big question marks is what happens with the pandemic. Uh, we're getting into the fall. People are going back to school. Colleges are back in session. Uh, we've seen a number of problems in uh, the South and the West. Those have subsided somewhat, but are still at elevated levels. And we're seeing parts of the northern Midwest uh, now showing more problems from the pandemic. So I think a lot depends on how the pandemic evolves. I certainly hope we get a better situation as we get to the end of the year. But I think it's far from certain at this point. I want to come back to the economy a little bit later, but I want to shift gears and talk about the Main Street Lending Facility, which the Boston Federal Reserve runs. And, and honestly, President Roosevelt, I'm not sure how to think about this. You've gone from zero to over a billion loans uh, on a program that didn't exist before in a relatively short period of time. On the other hand, uh, for the Main Street Lending Facility, it's much smaller so far than the corporate, than the ones that's available to the big companies. So my question is, uh, first of all, do you feel like the standards, are you charging too much money for these loans at 3%? Is that a reason why the ramp up has been slow? So I think the ramp up has been slow because the facility that you hire lighted, the corporate facility, involves purchasing things in the market, which you can do very quickly. Uh, actually participating in loans takes a lot longer to do. And as a result, it doesn't surprise me but that there's been a slower uptake. As you highlight, we have uh, $1.2 billion in settled loans. As of last night, we have $1.7 billion in loans that have either been accepted or in process. So I think the ramp up is uh, going about as I would have expected. And we are seeing a significant number of banks and a significant number of borrowers that are starting to utilize the facility. And we're also seeing a number of banks that initially only had one or two loans now at five, six and adding loans uh, pretty regularly. So I think we're going to continue to see a ramp up. How many loans we actually do, I think, again, depends on the pandemic. If the pandemic gets worse, I would expect to do a lot more lending. I would also highlight that we hit another milestone today, which is the nonprofit part of the Main Street loan facility was opened up. Uh, it's too early to know what kind of uptake we're going to have on that. But uh, as you know, there are a lot of people employed in the nonprofit sector. Think of universities, colleges, hospitals, uh, many other nonprofit organizations. So I think there is an opportunity for that. It'll probably slowly ramp up again because it takes a little time to negotiate those loans. But I fully expect that over time, we'll start seeing a lot more nonprofit loans as well. All right, let me come back to the outlook, President Rosengren, and thank you for that. Um, what's the outlook for GDP? Uh, we've heard that that uh, th this, this quarter looks like it's on pace to be, you know, near a 30% rebound. When do we get back to normal, in your opinion? So I'm not sure I'd focus on GDP as the normal. Those numbers have gyrated substantially because of um, the pandemic and the fact that many businesses had to shut down either because of state mandates or because the infection rate was so high in their area. 
So I think a better gauge of where we are is actually the unemployment rate. So at 8.4% unemployment, uh, we're still very, that is a very significant recession. And I do think that it is going to take quite a while to bring all those uh, people back, particularly if it takes us a long time, not only to get uh, the pandemic resolved, but also to get a, a workable and safe vaccine that's widely distributed. I think it really is going to take that before we see a completely normalized market, because I don't see retail trade, leisure and hospitality, other areas where there's a lot of interaction with people fully recovering until the pandemic problem is over. Uh, Kelly, I had an interesting uh, observation at the top of uh, th this segment here, this idea of this. Does the Fed need to do more? And I don't mean because of what's happening with the market now, but two of your colleagues have suggested that pretty soon the Federal Reserve could announce some form of quantitative easing program as well as uh, outcome-based forward guidance. What's your outlook on those two? Do the, does the Fed need to do them and are they coming soon? So uh, we're already doing a fair number of purchases and programs like the Main Street program are also adding to our balance sheet. Um, so we already are doing quite a lot uh, in terms of stimulating the economy. I think we'll have to consider what is appropriate forward guidance, but I think at this point, the markets well understand that we're not planning on raising rates anytime soon. When you have a very high unemployment rate and a very low inflation rate, that's not a time where it's appropriate to be raising rates. And so I don't think there's any disconnect between where the market sees uh, interest rates going and where we are right now. I'm sorry, I need to follow up just very quickly. It doesn't sound like you think the Fed needs to do uh, anything too quickly here. I think we'll have to consider what kind of forward guidance is appropriate. I don't think there's a rush to do that because I think the market already fully understands that it's going to be quite some time okay. before we need to be raising rates. President Rosengren, thanks so much for joining us here on The Exchange. Good talking with you, Steve. Steve, good stuff. And Thank Kelly, you, sir. Kelly, back to you. Uh, where, where else to do the Main Street Lending Facility guy who, who runs this thing since we've done so much coverage on this show? I know. The Main Street Lending Facility or lack thereof. We really appreciate you bringing that to us, Steve. <laughs> Got a lot of good stuff out of him. Thank you, sir. Steve Leisman interviewing Eric Rosengren of the New York or of the Boston Fed, I should say. I'm sorry. Now, on the heels of today's jobs report, we've had two companies announcing some pretty big hiring plans in the last 24 hours. FedEx says they're going to hire about 70,000 seasonal workers this year to handle the expected surge of packages. Now, you might say they hire a lot of seasonal workers every year. No, this is a 27 percent increase over last year's record. Shares of FedEx have dumped about, uh, jumped about 46 percent this year amid the boom in e-commerce. Also, Amazon saying it'll hire an additional 10,000 workers in Bellevue, Washington. This in addition to the announcement of 15,000 jobs they made in February. Amazon shares have soared 75% this year. So add it all up, there are some places looking to hire. Coming up, our election betting odds impacting the market. JP Morgan thinks so. We'll look at what the recent polls are telling us. Plus, can't talk about the sell-off without mentioning Apple and Tesla. It's a time to buy, sell, or hold. Tesla briefly went positive earlier today. It's down 1% right now. Apple's down 3%. And we're back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a roller coaster ride for markets today. Let's start with the major averages. The Dow was up about 250 points at the highs. The averages were briefly positive this morning after that better than expected report on the jobs market last month. But we didn't hold that for long. We're down 350 on the Dow right now, and that's off the lows. The S&P is down 59. The Nasdaq is down 330 points. It was down 480 mid-morning uh, at what are so far the lows of the day. So another nearly 3% drop for the Nasdaq. And that brings me to the action on the sector board behind me. Take a picture. You haven't seen it look like this in a while. The green sectors are industrials and financials. That's right. Small gains, about half a percent, but green nevertheless. And look at who is now at the bottom of the board. It's technology and communication services, so call it tech. Technology down 3% today. Same for communication services and consumer discretionary. You find those names like Amazon also shedding 3% today. So again, a pattern we've seen the last couple of sessions Maybe the new normal, we'll see. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. A U.N. watchdog found Iran has increased its stockpile of enriched uranium. The stockpile, while below what Iran possessed before the 2015 nuclear deal, is still over 10 times the amount allowed. Three people have been arrested in a shooting that killed a Cleveland police detective last night. Police have released little about what happened, but say another person was also killed in that incident. The 53-year-old had served the force for 25 years. The Pentagon has ordered its independent newspaper, The Stars and Stripes, to cease publication. The paper's final issue will be September 30th, despite congressional efforts to continue its funding. And Lionel Messi says that he will stay with Barcelona after days of speculation that he might leave the team. Messi informed the club last week that he would exercise a clause in his contract to leave unilaterally. You are up to date, Kelly. A messy breakup averted. I think you did the story just for that headline. <laughs> I did, actually. It's, good. it's big news. So there you go. And it's very clever. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you next hour. So you thank it. you. These markets, as I mentioned a moment ago, are full of surprises. Financials weathering the sell-off much better than others right now. And this is a sector that Wall Street is pretty much left for dead, given low interest rates. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citi, and Wells Fargo all in the green. Another twist, digital payment stocks like PayPal and Square are sinking. They've been red hot this year, but today we're seeing a major reversal. PayPal down 7.5%. Let's bring in Hugh Sun. He's CNBC.com's banking reporter, along with our very own Wilfred Frost. Talk a little bit more about this. Um, Hugh, I'll start with you. You had pointed out that PayPal had just usurped Goldman Sachs and market cap, uh, but we'll see if that was just a high watermark. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of red on the, on the sticker today, but I think the long-term trend is hard to deny and it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. Here's a 12-year company that didn't exist 12 years ago. They started out by creating these little credit card readers for, for people's phones for micro-merchants. And, you know, they're just about as valuable as Goldman Sachs. It's been around 151 years. Obviously a stellar reputation and a stellar set of businesses. And I just think it's remarkable that they've reached that, that, that inflection point. So, Wilf, let's talk a little bit about the comeback we've seen in the boring big old banks uh, here lately. Uh, what is... I mean, are we to read a lot into this about how they're changing their business models to keep up with the technological transformation, or is it simply a case of, you know, the darlings got a little bit too sweet? Uh, I think it's it's the latter in terms of what you're seeing as a move today. Uh, you just have to look at the, the share price performance, KBW Bank's index down 32% year to date, so clearly lagged massively uh, so far this year. And, and you know, 
we have had relatively decent macro data this week in general, and yields have picked up uh, as a sign of that data today, which uh, both factors, of course, help those commercially uh, exposed banks. And so you're seeing a little bit of a bounce uh, from those lows. In, in terms of that, that battle between the fintech companies and the traditional banks, I think there are two big differences for as to whether the big banks are as threatened as, say, the traditional automakers are by Tesla. The first is that they've had much longer to get their, essentially their EV equivalent, their tech, <laughs> uh, ready for, for the market. And it is already at least comparable uh, as opposed to being a decade behind that of the, the uh, new challenger. Uh, and then separately, there are, what, 60, 70 percent of the market in the U.S. is taken up by thousands of smaller banks. So you could also make the argument that, uh, in fact, the bigger banks who've now got good tech and the fintech guys will both be taking market share off a long tail of other players, as opposed to it just being a, a binary bet, right. PayPal versus JP Morgan. Well, also, Wilf, want to ask you about this headline. I mean, front page of the Wall Street Journal today, they're highlighting this windfall that Wall Street, they say, is reaping in fees. Mm -hmm. um, but their point is that investment banking and trading revenues were at an eight-year high in the first half of 2020. I mean, that includes the pandemic. What's going on there? Yeah, really interesting story, I agree. And the report behind it, which I was able to, to look at as well over the last couple of hours, also uh, interesting. Clearly, the starting point of this, investment banks have done well this year. Commercial banks haven't. That's already played out a bit in the stock market. Morgan Stanley's up 2% year-to-date. Wells Fargo's down 54%, uh, which is the, the best way of highlighting that. Uh, and Q1 and Q2, we knew trading revenues were very strong. The question was, will investment banking and IPOs uh, pick up as well? And that now clearly, uh, based on that article, that report, is the case, uh, in, in which case you could say, gosh, for investment banks, this is not just a uh, questionable year. It's, it's, in fact, a great year for their environment. So why aren't the stocks up even more than they are relative to the commercial banks? And the answer to that uh, is the same answer you'd get uh, to, to why do investment banks long-term carry a lower earnings multiple for their stock price than commercial banks, and it's that their earnings are more volatile and less mm. predictable. So Q1, Q2 have been great. Q3 shaping up to be pretty great for them as well. But we don't know about Q4 and into next year and the year ahead. And, and, and that's why uh, you only ever get short jumps as opposed to lasting changes in the multiple of those investment banks. Interesting. Hugh, let me turn back to you then and ask if kind of the big banks see the squares and PayPal's of the world as a friend or as a foe? Yeah, I mean, I think they see it as a missed opportunity. I, I've sat down with executives, and they and they look at what the likes of a PayPal, and they look like the, the likes of Square and 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 else Plaid and Stripe as well. And they look at that and they say, "We could have done it," you know, and they they feel a bit of regret of that. They feel a bit of FOMO over that. I, I don't know how how much that would have changed the overall texture of their uh, their results and their valuation because, as you know, they still have you know they have some excellent high growth businesses. You look at Goldman Sachs for one. And within it is a, is a fast-growing digital bank. And, you know, we've reported that Goldman Sachs CEO has, has complained about the valuation, you know, in, in contrary to what startups get. And, you know, the fact is, you know, that even if you have a fast-growing business within the, the, the context of, you know, these huge organizations that are really four or five different large, large financial companies, you know, it, that they still don't really get the valuation that pop that, that sort of more monoline, yeah. more digital native companies get. So, you know, they feel FOMO, but at the same time, you know, they're so mature that it's, it's amazing to be seeing what they can really do. Quick last word, Wilf. I was just going to say, next time we do this, Kelly, I'm going to take my tough because I feel like I'm really embodying <laughs> the old failing traditional <laughs> banks and Hughes nailing the, 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 the sexy growing uh, fintech. <laughs> yeah, he gets the what better. Like today? <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you both very much. Hugh Sun, Wilfred Frost, Wolf, we'll see you very soon. Shares of Moderna are falling on reports the company is slowing its COVID vaccine trials. Shares are actually down 21% in the past month. Why? Meg Terrell just spoke with the CEO of Moderna, and she will join us with those details ahead. The company's shares are down about 5% today. Also, billionaires bashed with Facebook, Amazon, and Tesla all down big this week. The CEOs that run those companies are seeing their wealth fall with them. We'll look at the numbers right after this. Welcome back. Wall Street is sensing yet another shift in the 2020 race. This week, J.P. Morgan strategists noted that investors should position themselves for the odds of a Trump win to rise. Today, Democratic nominee Joe Biden is delivering remarks on the economy. This morning, Mad Money host Jim Cramer expressing some concern about his tax policies, tweeting, people worried about Biden raising corporate taxes? Question mark. For more, let's bring in Eamon Javers, who has been following these stories for us, Eamon, and what they're saying about the stock market and the economy. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. Joe Biden speaking in Wilmington, Delaware, just a short time ago, wrapping up his remarks. Biden absolutely blasting the president for those reported comments in which the president suggested that American servicemen who die in wars are suckers and losers. Biden uh, blasting the president as uncaring for that. The White House and the president have spent today uh, furiously denying that he ever said any such thing. Biden, for his part, also blasting the president as simply not caring enough about unemployed Americans. Here's what he said. A measure of our economic success is the quality of life of the American people. And if your stocks soar as families teeter on the brink of hunger and homelessness, and our president calls that success, what does that say about what he values? When you see the world in such a narrow prism, it's no wonder he doesn't see nearly 30 million Americans on unemployment. All of that coming against a backdrop of an increasingly tight race. Here's our own CNBC States of Play polling in uh, the middle of August showing Biden holding a slight lead in all six of the swing states in which we are conducting our polling. But at the same time, we do see an uptick in the president's approval rating. Trump approval now 48 percent, also an approval increase in terms of his handling of the virus as well. Uh, A quick whip around here of some of the other national polls uh, and uh, state polls that have come in just in the past 24 hours. Uh, In Florida, the Quinnipiac poll has Biden 48, Trump 45. So a narrow lead there for Biden in Florida. North Carolina, Monmouth has Biden 48, Trump 46. But look at this in Pennsylvania, which is one of the toughest battleground states of this election and Joe Biden's home state. Uh, the Rasmussen poll has Biden 46, Trump 46, a dead heat. And in, uh, but also in Pennsylvania, Quinnipiac has Biden 52, Trump 44. So unclear exactly what's going on uh, in Pennsylvania, Kelly. But this race uh, is tightening up as we see that uptick in the Trump approval rating. Biden still managing a slight lead in all of these uh, battleground states as of right now. Long way between now and November, though, Kelly. Well, Eamon, I've heard people speculating about that this week. I mean, we for for sure heard people link Trump's better re-election odds the past few weeks with the market rally. But then even just that Quinnipiac poll in Pennsylvania yesterday, um, some some questions about whether that has reversed the trend. And all of a sudden, just as soon as we're talking about Trump uh, having momentum, if Biden actually looks like he has a decent lead in a very important swing state. 
Yeah, look, I mean, there's two difficult things going on here. One is figuring out what's going on in this race. It does seem like the race is tightening up. You do see that uptick in Trump approval. Uh, Biden still has a lead. Uh, but at the same time, the, the other question for, for market participants is what does the market want here? Is there, a, is, a, is there a preferred outcome here? Does the market look at this and say, look, Biden's coming in. Uh, he, looks like, he looks strong to win. He might raise taxes on us. He might raise regulations, particularly on environmental issues. Uh, that's going to be a cost of doing business. Therefore, stocks are going to be worth less in the future. Or does the market look at this and say, you know what, if Biden wins, we're going to have less trade war rhetoric. We're going to have a president who doesn't go after individual companies and call for specific buyouts. And we're going to have some uh, calmness and certainty around some of these rule of law issues uh, that have come up in the Trump presidency. I don't know the answer to that. Your market guests uh, will tell you better than I can. But there's two ways of looking at that. Well, and we have a long time between now and November to ask him about it as well. Eamon, thank you very much, sir. Eamon Javers with the very latest for back. us. Let's turn from Washington to Wall Street now, talk about what the sell-off is doing to the wealthy. The four richest billionaires in the country took a collective $25 billion hit yesterday as their stocks tanked. Robert Frank is here with how things are looking for their net worths now. Robert? Kelly, even more losses for those top four today. Those top four losing over $35 billion yesterday and today. So they have lost more in a day and a half than the entire net worth of Michael Dell or Nike founder Phil Knight. Now, Jeff Bezos now down $16 billion, so $7 billion yesterday, about $9 billion uh, today. He is still the richest man in the world with about $190 billion. But Elon Musk, he's had the most dramatic losses for the week. He was down $9 billion yesterday, $19 billion down for the week. Looks like he maybe could gain or lose another billion or two today. We'll see where that stock winds up. But what a roller coaster he's had this week. On Monday, he was worth $115 billion, passing Mark Zuckerberg to become the third richest person in the world. Now Musk is down to fourth place with about $95 billion. Zuckerberg down about $8 billion today and yesterday. Now, the biggest percentage loser among billionaires is actually Dan Gilbert with Rocket Mortgage. That stock, we haven't talked much about it, but that was down yesterday and today. He is down more than 20% or about $9 billion for the week, Kelly. So some crazy numbers on the way up and now on the way down. Yeah, I mean, a reminder both ways of just how much of their wealth is tied up in the stock performance. Dan Gilbert, I wasn't expecting to make the list. It's odd, Robert, because Rocket Mortgage, you'd think, would be one of the best names in this kind of pandemic housing boom that we're seeing. But the IPO went off weak. And as you said, they've been struggling. Right. And the earnings yesterday. And, and the reason I think this matters is You've got a lot of states now talking about a wealth tax. California legislators, New York legislators, both proposing a tax on net worth or unrealized capital gains. This reminds us all how volatile a wealth tax will be. If you tax Elon Musk on Monday, that's a very different number from if you're taxing him today. So I think states and, and people that are looking at a wealth tax have to keep in mind just how volatile these top fortunes are, especially for a state like California, which is so dependent on the tech billionaires. Yeah, absolutely. California, Manhattan, uh, they've been through these cycles. Robert, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate absolutely. it. Thank Robert you. Frank. Still ahead, my next guest sold out of Apple right before the split and says it's time to buy cyclicals. We'll have a closer look at some of the names best position for gains right now. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map. New candidate Salesforce. That is the big laggard today, along with Microsoft and Visa. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Day two of the market sell-off continues here with the Dow down 335 points. The S&P down 54. That's a 1.5% decline. And the Nasdaq down 2.5% right now, or 282, but we're 200 points off the lows for that index. I want to draw your attention to what's going on with the price of oil as well, uh, dropping $2 in the session today, going below $40 a barrel, uh, which is a level we haven't seen for some time. As we continue to pile up signs for what kind of trade is shaping up in front of our eyes, you can throw the drop in crude in there and see what you come up with. It's a 4% decline. Coming up, shares of Moderna sliding following news that the company is slowing down enrollment in its COVID-19 vaccine trial. The reason behind that move is next. And a programming note, Tuesday on CNBC, tune in for a special program at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Path Forward, Race and Opportunity in America. John Fort and Andrew Ross Sorkin will take a closer look at the underrepresentation of black workers and leaders in corporate America and hear ideas and solutions from CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. We've been talking about momentum stocks cooling off for a few days now. But are we headed for a deeper freeze? Apple is down more than 10 percent in just the past two days, even after pairing some of its earlier losses today. And briefly, despite turning positive, Tesla is still down about 20 percent off its all-time high earlier this week. Is it time for investors to pivot out of growth stocks? My next guest thinks so. For more, let's welcome in Stuart Frankel, Director of Institutional Sales and Fast Money Trader Steve Grasso, who I think is parked somewhere along the LIE right now. Um, Steve, welcome. And uh, <laughs> tell, me, tell me what you think investors should do here. Let's start with Apple. Yeah, so, so I think that if you have to look at it, what the stock splits did to the, to the market, Kelly, once Apple announced that and Tesla followed, what did the market do? It ripped higher. You have to think about where the next 30 to 50% of the profits are going to be uh, coming from. Not from tech. It's going to be the cyclicals. It's going to be the banks. It's going to be the chemical names. It's going to be the paper and container products. Names like that. So I should ditch the tech. So say that again, Steve, about ditching tech. So if you think about where you, you've had a lot of gains in the overall market and especially specifically in tech. So when I say ditch, that means take profits, right? You don't have to sell it all. Apple, Tesla, it could be long-term holdings, but you could take a 20% piece of it or 30% piece of it and lock in some, but that would be the wise thing to do. All right, so you'd say to sell 20 to 30% of your Apple, of your Tesla, if you have it. What about the cyclical plays you would recommend people buying into? Tell me about those. So I am in a diversified chemical play. It's called Trinseo. And rock is container um, and paper products. Think about what FedEx announced yesterday. 27% increase year over year to supply for their higher demand seasonal products, right? So what does that mean? That means Amazon's are going to rally. That means they're going to need more boxes. That means that Westrock, a low, a low under the radar name, WRK, should rip higher from here if the, um, I don't know, let's, let's call it, I don't want to even call it a rotation because these rotations last, as you said, two, three, four days. I think people are just looking for bargains. This is where the bargains are. But when you say the rotation lasts for just a couple of days, you think there's a, a bigger one going on here? Yeah, I think that this time it's, it's going to be different. 
Think about how those high-flying tech names, how they've ripped higher. They're all up 75 to 250%. All the names that I just uh, uh, named are at trough valuation. So people are going to say, where am I going to make my profits going forward? I've already been there, done that with tech. Mm-hmm. Let me try something different. But the truth is, when you look at the overall marketplace, if the Fed comes back in and starts even a bigger stimulus package or the government agrees on something, those names are still going to rally, and I mean the cyclical names. Right. Why? Because people have had a mass exodus out of them already, and now they're not going to dip back into the same old tech names, is my opinion. Fair enough. So, again, uh, pairing your Apple and Tesla, maybe looking at a Westrock and a Trinseo. Steve, thanks very much, sir. We appreciate it today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Steve Grasso of Steve Grasso fame. Meantime, shares of Moderna are lower following news that the company is slowing down enrollment in its COVID-19 vaccine to ensure diversity. Meg Terrell joins me now with these details. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So one of the key metrics to track in terms of when we will get data about whether a vaccine works is how fast the clinical trials enroll. Uh, Moderna has said it's enrolled more than half of the people in its 30,000 participant phase three trial. And its CEO telling me today that they are slowing enrollment slightly in order to ensure that they have uh, diverse populations represented in the trial. Uh, Pfizer saying yesterday it's enrolled 23,000 and we do expect an update from Moderna after the close today, but that puts Moderna a little bit behind. Moderna saying in particular they want to enroll more folks from the black and African American community. Right now they've enrolled about 7% from that community and it is among the hardest hit from COVID-19 both in terms of the risk for getting the disease and from severe disease if they do get it. Uh, Pfizer's enrolled about 8% from the black and African American community in its trial. And so Moderna CEO saying they've told several clinical trial sites that they need to do better in terms of reaching out to those communities and that they're willing to take a delay of a week or so, uh, so not a huge delay, in order to make sure that they prove this vaccine works for everybody, and particularly those communities that uh, are most at risk for this disease. Kelly? Meg, is there more going on here, though? Because as we noted, Moderna shares are down about 20% in the past month, and they and Pfizer have very similar enrollments of this population, 7% versus 8% respectively. It doesn't sound like Pfizer's slowing down. They've signed up more participants. So is this... Is there more to the Moderna problem uh, than just this effort about diversity? I've heard some speculation from folks that maybe there is something else going on. I haven't heard of anything, and I'm reaching out to clinical trial sites and people who are running the trials to try to get a sense of what they're seeing in terms of enrollment. Um, You know, Pfizer is seemingly plowing ahead with similar diversity numbers as Moderna, and so one has to wonder how that will affect things down the line if it turns out that, yes, Pfizer enrolls its 30,000 first, but has less of the representation from those populations. What will that mean in terms of either trust from those communities, acceptance from regulators, all of these questions? Yeah. Uh, and of course, Pfizer isn't done. So we'll have to see where those numbers shake out. Absolutely. So, Meg, before we go, you know, where are we in terms of the timeline overall? You know, when we spoke with Pfizer CEO a couple of weeks back, he was looking at October and people are turning more optimistic in the market that we're looking at a vaccine in, in the next few months here. Are those hopes founded, you think? 
Well, Pfizer CEO reiterated that timeline yesterday saying they expect to know whether this vaccine works by the end of October and they could apply for FDA approval or authorization pretty quickly thereafter. But we heard a lot of skepticism from Anthony Fauci and from Monsef Slawi, who leads Operation Warp Speed, that October is really soon and they are pegging November or December. But we'll just have to see. Pfizer is not a promotional company usually, so uh, you wouldn't expect them to make these claims unless they were pretty confident. Yeah, well said. Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest for us. And that does it for us on The Exchange today, but don't go anywhere. Peloton is down again today, but getting yet another price target hike. JMP going up to 109 bucks. That's the new street high. The analyst behind the call joins us live on Power Lunch with Peloton shares back under 80. The market overall, let's check in as we go. Down 306 on the Dow. Don't call it a comeback. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.